0: The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at
1: citybibleforum.org. We started the sentence mark number 18, and then Jesus asked. What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. All right, Sam. Hear a little bit about food today and uh, turn it over to you. Thank you.
0: Well, I used to live in Chicago in the early 2000s, and while I was living there, I saw voting posters for an upcoming US Senate election. And one of the posters was for an obscure young politician that most people had not heard of before. And his name was Barack Hussein Obama. And at that time, the USA was fighting the Iraq war. And they were fighting against the Iraq president, uh, Saddam Hussein. And so when I saw Barack Hussein Obama's name, I thought, oh, the poor guy. He's never going to go anywhere in politics, not with a name like that. He shouldn't try politics, there's no future for him there. But how wrong I was. Since that time, Barack Obama has become president of the USA. We hear his name every day. We see his pictures every day. And because he because he's the president of one of the largest countries in the world. But hang on, if God is in charge of the uni- universe, shouldn't we hear about God every day? Shouldn't we see more of God every day? I mean, where is God? Shouldn't God make himself more obvious? Why doesn't God make himself more obvious? Well, welcome again to our month's forum. In this month, we're doing a four-part series called If God is So Loving, Why? And we're looking at these four questions. Number one, why do bad things happen to good people? Number two, why are religious people jerks? Number three, why doesn't God make himself more obvious? And number four, why is there only one way to God? And in this series, we'll look at each one of these questions one by one, week by week, and see what the Bible, in particular Luke chapter 13, has to say about our question. And today is week three, question three why doesn't God make himself more obvious? And we just heard some teaching from Jesus himself in Luke chapter 13. And that's on the inside of our handout on the left page there. And in this reading from Luke chapter 13, Jesus says the kingdom of God, well, it's like a tiny, tiny mustard seed. And it's also like yeast, which you cannot see with a human eye. What's going on here? If I was going to build the kingdom of God, it wouldn't be a mustard seed. It wouldn't be yeast. I would make the kingdom of God like an ocean liner, or the A380, or the planet Jupiter, so you can't miss it. In other words, our question to Jesus should be this. Why a mustard seed? Why yeast? Why doesn't God make himself more obvious? That's our question, And to answer this, there are three parts to my talk, and you you can see that on the outline that's in front of you on on the page inside. Three parts. Part one, the problem with God not being obvious. In the middle part, we'll look at, well, what proofs can we use to prove that God does exist? And in the final part, what proofs does Jesus use? So let's begin with the first part of the talk now, the problem. And the problem is this. Philosophers call it the hiddenness of God. The hiddenness of God. Antony Flew is a famous atheist philosopher, and he tells a story of the invisible gardener. He says it's like this. Two explorers are walking around in the jungle, and suddenly they stumble upon a clearing which looks like a garden. So the first explorer believes there must be a gardener. That's why there's a garden. But the second explorer is sceptical. He says there is no gardener. And so they set up watch to see if they can see the gardener come, but no gardener comes. So the first believing explorer says, well, he must be invisible. The second guy, the sceptic, says, whatever, there is no gardener. So now they try to catch the invisible gardener. They set up an electric fence. They have dogs that can smell the gardener. They have motion detectors. But no gardener ever comes. And so the second sceptical explorer says, there is no gardener. And the first guy, the believer, says, no, there is a gardener. It's just that he's invisible, intangible, and very mysterious. And so the skeptic says, well, how is that different from an imaginary gardener or no gardener at all? And it's the same with God. If God is so invisible, so the Christian God of the Bible is invisible, intangible, mysterious. Well, what's the point of having a God at all? He may as well be imaginary or no God at all. Anthony Flew says the problem of the Christian God of the Bible is that he dies a a death by a thousand qualifications. Because if there really is a God, and if this God loves us, shouldn't he make it easier for us to find him? Shouldn't he make himself more obvious? Make himself visible to us? So that's the first part of the talk. The problem. The problem of the hiddenness of God. Let's come to the middle part of the talk now, and let's ask ourselves this question. Well, what proofs do we want from God? How can we prove that there really is a God? And here I've got three things to see, say. You can see that these three, three points are printed in front of you. Point number one, there's a problem with evidence and proof. The problem with evidence and proof. Now, a few years ago in Colorado, there was a famous Aurora Cinema Theatre shootings where a gunman walked into a movie theatre with 400 people inside watching the Batman movie. And this gunman had several guns. One was a machine gun with a hundred rounds and he fired 70 shots into the audience. He killed 12 people and he injured 70 others. Now they're the facts, that's the data, that's the evidence. But what is it evidence of? What does this shooting prove to us? Well, to many of us, it proves we need gun control. We need less guns. America is a crazy country with too many guns. They need less guns. But to some other people, the the same facts, the same evidence, the same data proves we need more guns. Like if the people in this theatre had a gun, they would have shot shot this guy. They would have stopped him before he got 76 rounds off. So this is the problem with evidence. What is clear evidence for one person? We need less guns. It's clear evidence for another guy we need more guns. Well, what evidence do we want from God? Do we want miracles? Maybe God raising someone from the dead? Well, according to the Bible, God has already done these things. And that's the problem with proof and evidence. If we already believe in God, everything proves to us that there is a God. But if we don't believe in God everything proves to us that there is no God. Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt is a regular TED speaker. He says our minds are actually already made up. Most of what we believe comes to us from our community, and so we use what he calls post hoc reasoning. We interpret the evidence, the facts, the data, to suit what we already believe. And so that's the problem with proof evidence and data, we only use it to prove what we already believe. So if evidence and proof can't prove beliefs to us, what should we do then? And this is my second point. Point two, can we now believe anything that we want to believe? Well, here are some truth claims. Have a look at these truth claims. It is raining right now in Moscow. Truth claim number one. Truth claim number two. My wife loves me. Truth claim number three, there is a God. So am I allowed to believe these truth claims, these statements, because my parents tell me? My parents tell me it's raining in Moscow, so I choose to believe them. Should I believe this because the dictator of North Korea tells me to believe them? You know, my wife loves me, the dictator of North Korea tells me to believe it, so I believe it. Should I believe these things because my friends believe it? There is a God, my friends believe in a God, so I should believe it. Should I believe these things because it's how I was raised by my parents? Should I believe these things because it makes me feel good? I feel good that it's raining in Moscow? Should I believe these things? We would all say no, you're not allowed to believe any of those things based on those things, you're only allowed to believe these truth claims if these statements are true. That is our criteria, we can only believe things That are true. So even if we use this lazy throwaway line, oh you have your beliefs, I have my beliefs, you have your truths, I have my truths, deep down we all know we just can't believe whatever we want. We can only believe something if it's true. We can't believe something just because someone tells us. We can only believe something if it's true, if it corresponds with reality. But now how do we know if something corresponds with reality? Well this is point number three. How can we tell if something is true or not? How can we tell if something corresponds with reality? Well the benchmark is what they call deductive proof. Mathematical logical deductive proof. Where we believe one plus one equals two, that is truth. That's based on mathematical logical deductive proof. Uh, Triangles have three sides. We believe this to be true. It's mathematical, logical, deductive proof. But there's a problem with deductive proof. The problem is is this. We actually can't discover new knowledge with mathematical deductive proof. We can only build upon our presuppositions that we already know to be true. Uh, And you actually can't build much knowledge based upon 1 plus 1 equals 2 and triangles have three sides. It ends up with, with a closed system of knowledge where we closed off from any new knowledge. We can't discover new things with mathematical, logical, deductive proof. So there's another type of proof and it's called scientific inductive proof. Scientific thinking thinking based on inductive proof. And we all know scientific thinking. We all learnt it in primary school and high school. It's where we make observations from an experiment, we observe the facts, the data, the evidence, from that we construct a theory, we test the theory in an experiment and we adjust our theory depending on the results of the experiment. So from this we all know that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius based on scientific inductive thinking, and none of us argue about this. We all know that the sky outside is blue based on scientific inductive thinking. We don't argue about this. The sky is blue. You guys don't say, no, it's not. No, we all agree. Uh, and we all believe that gravity pff, sucks things to the ground based on scientific inductive proof. But there's a problem with scientific, pure scientific, scientific inductive proof. And it's that scientific thinking also requires certain presuppositions to be true. The scientific method Only works if we believe these things to be true. Fact number one, the universe is repeatable and predictable in its events. Fact number two, our minds are capable of rational and reliable thought and are not deceiving us. Fact number three, other intelligent minds exist besides my own. But we can't use science to prove any one of these three facts. We just have to accept them as true, as cold Hard, brute facts. This was Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist philosopher's famous critique of the scientific inductive method that we bring in to science presuppositions that we cannot prove from science. Scientific thinking is also limited in what it can prove to us. There are many things we believe to be true that science cannot give us. Have a look at these facts that we all believe to be true. It is wrong to discriminate. It's wrong for a white person to discriminate against a black person. We believe this to be true, but science cannot prove this to us. We cannot set up an experiment to prove this. We all believe that a husband should love his wife, but we can't use science to prove this to us. There is no experiment we can set up. We all believe, well, I believe my wife loves me. So at the end of today, when I go home and my wife says to me, I love you, what am I going to say to her? Prove it! (laughs) Set up an experiment, an empirically based, observable, repeatable, scientific method experiment that can prove that you love me. Give me a kilogram of your love. It's a category mistake. So there's so many things that we believe to be true and we would die for that science can actually not give us, cannot prove to us. So science is very limited. So if what we believe to be true is not based purely on deductive mathematical thinking, it's not based purely on inductive scientific thinking, how do we form our beliefs? How do we believe reality around us? Well it's a combination of things. It's a combination of much of what we believe actually comes from people we trust. Much of what we believe comes from people we trust. Now I'm a doctor So if you came to me with an asthma attack, I'll give you this, a puffer. And then you could say to me, well, how do you know this works? How does this puffer work? And I would say, well, have a look at the diagram. It's basically a sympathomimetic beta-2 adrenergic agonist, and it relaxes the smooth muscles in your bronchioles. But then you could say to me, how do you know this? Have you ever seen this? Have you ever looked up the journal article for this? Have you ever observed this at the micro-molecular level? And I would have said, no. I've never seen any of those things. I just believe it because some doctor, lecturer dude once told this to me at university in a lecture. So it's an appeal to what someone I trust has told me. It's also an appeal to my own personal experience. So much of what we believe comes from people we trust. Now, in this room, we all believe water boils at 100 degrees celsius. We all believe this to be true. Who of us here, hands right up, as high as you can, who of us here have actually done the experiment where you boiled the water, put a thermometer inside and saw the water boil at 100 degrees celsius. Just a show of hands. Anyone? Wow, that's amazing. Not one person in this room has done the experiment. So we all here believe water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. Not one of us has done the experiment to prove it. We all believe it because it's what someone told us. And we're happy to believe it to be true because someone we trust has told us this fact and we believe it based on that. A few months ago, I had a sore shoulder, so I saw a surgeon and he said, you need an operation. And I believed him. I didn't say, hey, show me the journal article, uh, prove it to me. No, I, he's the surgeon. He says, I need an operation. So I trusted him. And I put my life at risk. Every operation carries a risk of death. I risked death basically purely because a surgeon who I trusted said, you need an operation. Most of what we believe comes from believing what trusted people tell us. We take people at their word. We also believe things because we're open to corroborating evidence. It's raining in Moscow. My wife loves me. There is a God. Why might we believe those things? Because we're actually open to corroborating evidence. Not just what trusted people tell us, but also because it might fit other things in our life, our experience. It might fit our experience. So in my experience, it might be raining in Moscow. It always rains in September in Moscow, so it fits my experience. My friends might tell me, my wife loves me. She really loves you. And so it best fits my experience and what trusted people tell me. A webcam could be set up to show me it's raining in Moscow. So a trusted source of information is another form of corroborating evidence. But in the end, most of us believe what we believe. So again, is it true? Based on what philosophers call the explanation of best fit. We would believe these statements, it's rainy Moscow, my wife loves me, there is a God because it is the explanation of best fit. It best explains the facts, the data, the evidence. It best explains my experience. It best explains what trusted people tell me. Most of us here in this room, most of us would believe in global warming. Why do we believe in global warming? We can't set up a repeatable scientific experiment to prove it. Maths can't prove to us that there's global warming. Why do we believe in global warming? Because it's an explanation of best fit. The best fits, best explains the data, our experience, and what trusted people tell us. And based on that, we're willing to change our behaviour and even uh, make decisions that will cost our country a lot of money based on an explanation of best fit. So most of what we believe comes from an explanation of best fit. So let's come to the final part of the talk now. Well, what proof does Jesus give that God exists? What proof does Jesus give that God exists? And we've just heard from Luke chapter 13, where, God, where Jesus says, well, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed, which eventually grows to become a big tree, It's also like a bit of yeast that eventually goes to affect the whole batch of dough. So from this, I think Jesus is saying two things about God and how we can know there's a God. Number one, God might not be that obvious. Number one, God might not be that obvious or impressive. There is a hiddenness to God. Now, this is the Sydney Harbour Bridge. We are so proud of it. It is an iconic world landmark. It is one kilometre long, eight lanes wide, and it's a single-decker bridge. But let me show you some other not-so-famous bridges in the world. This is the Queensboro Bridge in New York. It is also one kilometre, but it's ten lanes wide, and it's a double-decker bridge. A bit more impressive, wouldn't you say? This is the... Oakland Bay Bridge in San Francisco, it's 3 kilometres long, 15 lanes and double-decker, a bit more impressive. The next one is my favourite one, it's a San Mateo Bridge in California, it is eleven <laughs> kilometres long. <laughs> the Sydney Harbour Bridge in comparison is smaller than we would expect, it's still beautiful, still iconic. Still spectacular, and it's just not as big or as impressive as we would expect for a world famous iconic bridge. My uncle came over from the USA, he was a civil engineer, and so when we showed him the bridge, he fell asleep for it. It was that unimpressive, he expected more. It's the same with God and his kingdom. We would expect more fire, more lightning, more bang, but instead it's smaller and less impressive than we expect. Jesus said, it's like a mustard seed. It's like a bit of yeast. It's not what we expect. In the Bible, John the Baptist had the same question for Jesus. John the Baptist asked Jesus, are you the one we were expecting? Because somehow not much seems to be happening. And Jesus' answer basically was, hey, lots of stuff is happening. You're just not looking in the right place. That's why you can't see it. Which brings me to the second thing that Jesus is saying. Not only is there hiddenness to God, but ironically, it's more powerful. God's kingdom is more powerful than we would have expected. So he's more hidden than we would have expected, but he's more powerful than we would have expected. Last month, I caught a cold. And a cold is incredible, because a cold is caused by this. A tiny, tiny, tiny particle called... A virus, a rhinovirus. The rhinovirus particle is only 30 nanometers big. It is 10 times smaller than smallpox or other viruses. But this tiny, tiny, tiny particle is enough to wipe us out. If you catch this, it will give you a cold, a cough, a sneeze, you moan, you groan. I can't get out of bed. I can't go to work. It's so hard to believe. That's why my wife doesn't believe me. She says, man up. Get out of bed, help me with the dishes, stop being such a princess. But but it's true. In the USA just last year, 70 million work days were lost from people catching a cold. $25 billion was lost in work last year in the USA, all due to one tiny, tiny, tiny particle. And in the Bible, Jesus is saying the same thing. God's kingdom is like yeast, but it will work its way through the whole dough. It is like a mustard seed that starts off small, but it becomes a tree so big. The leaves become shade to many animals, and the roots are so powerful. They will tear up concrete and tear up pipes. God, you see, plants his kingdom small. It looks unimpressive, but it begins just with a promise. It begins just with a blessing. And while we might cry out for something more impressive, fire, a voice from heaven, thunder... This is how God does it. He sends us a nobody, a nobody called Jesus. And this is probably what Jesus would have looked like. We think Jesus is tall, blonde, blue-eyed, Californian hippie dude. But in reality, he would have looked like this. He would have been a short guy, Palestinian, first century man. He would have looked very similar to this guy here. And then he had a small group of social misfits, as his followers and this is what they would look like (laughs) they were tax collectors fishermen, women lots of women basically a group of marginalised misfits, outcasts and outsiders and then Jesus dies on a cross and apart from some who think he rose from the dead Jesus is never heard from again but then slowly but surely his kingdom grows It begins with a small few house churches then it spreads to some major capital cities and now it's become a major world religion. At the last count today Christianity is the world's largest religion. One out of three people in the world will claim to know, trust, follow and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They project in just maybe 30 years the number of Christians in Africa will double from 20% of Africa to 40% of Africa. The number of Christians in mainland China will reach 67%. So just like a mustard seed, just like yeast, the kingdom of God, even though we might not see it, might not be impressive. Its effects are everywhere, and it's bigger and more powerful than we could have imagined. Our question today was this. Why doesn't God make himself more obvious? And we looked at Anthony Flew's Invisible Gardener. Where is God? Is he like the Invisible Gardener? And Jesus answers this. God is not invisible. God has made himself visible. He came to us as a person, Jesus. We could see him, touch him and hear him. It's just whether or not we choose to believe that Jesus really is God. So a question again. Why doesn't God make himself more obvious? Every day when I come to the city... I commute on my bike and I'll do all the right things. I wear the high visibility vest, I have fluoro bands on my legs, I have this flashing bar, bar, bar light on my bike, but cars do not see me. I'm absolutely invisible to cars. I will enter a roundabout and a car will come on my left and just not see me whoom, and enter speed and not give way and I have to stop for the car. And it's not that the driver is being mean or nasty, he just has not seen me. I am invisible to car drivers. They've done studies on this. They say that car drivers just cannot see cyclists. So they, 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 even a cyclist with high visibility gear, when they ride in front of a car driver, they put this driver with a PET scanner to see what parts of the brain lights up and when the bike goes by, nothing lights up. They do not see the cyclist. The cyclist is invisible to the driver. Why? Because the driver is not Expecting to see a cyclist. The driver has tuned out the possibility of a cyclist being there. So, why doesn't God make himself more obvious to us? Well, I think we're in a culture that has tuned out the existence of God. But if we expect to see God, we will see him everywhere. But often it won't be where we're expecting. It might be in the unspectacular as well as the spectacular. And it might be in a book. Where God talks to us. And this book has been in front of us all along. It might be in a historical person called Jesus. Who we've just got so used to. It might be in the story of Jesus who died for us. Who's risen from the dead. And if we trust him, he will know us. And his spirit actually lives inside of us. And we will have a personal experience of God himself. We use Jesus' name as a swear word every day. Our calendar dates are based on him. His birthday is a worldwide holiday. His death day is a national holiday. Why doesn't God make himself more obvious? Well, maybe he is obvious. We're just not expecting to see
1: him. So, uh, here we go. Are you ready? The first question is actually kind of personal. Mm. It's okay. Um, What made you a doctor? And I'm assuming Mm. you're doing the whole section on the scientists um, component. So, being a doctor or scientist... What made you believe
0: that God exists? What made me believe that God exists? Alright, so you can think of it rationally. So you think, okay, there seems to be design in the universe, and if there's design, there's a designer. And what's interesting about Anthony Flew's parable, the people stumble upon a garden, don't they? And so garden already implies a gardener. What the two explorers should have been debating was whether this was a garden or just a jungle. Uh, But but once they realise there's a garden, there is a gardener. And I think there are enough clues that there's design in the universe. What's interesting is Anthony Flew, by the end, uh, he himself believed in the existence of God. He says, you know what, there is enough design in the universe. And I guess the more medical and the more scientific you are, the more design you see. What's fascinating is the number of scientists who also believe in the Christian God has not changed with scientific discovery, as in uh, science... Being science, a scientist or a doctor is not a problem with believing in God. They're actually very compatible, and this often leads to to this belief. Uh, if you just look at the eyeball, you think this is amazing. This is an this this is a this is an instrument that's designed for night vision, day vision. It's got colour vision. It's got binocular stereoscopic vision. This is amazing. There's design in the eyeball. Just uh, the other day, we did a knee replacement, and you take apart the knee, you think this is an incredible. Hinge joint. This is an amazing hinge joint that we just take for granted every day. And just nothing. thing, I'm not trying to be crude. I'm not trying to be crude, so let me warn you. Uh, we're all adults, so I'm allowed to be R rated. But um, the male urethra uh, ha- is designed to put, I think, a 90 degree clockwise spin on the urine as it comes out. So just like a bullet when it leaves the gun, it spins, so it fires further and straighter. The male urethra spins the urine, so. It fires in a straight line. And so there's an extravagance in design there. You think, okay, what is the survival benefit of that? I, I'm not sure there is one. But there seems to be an extravagance in design here. So just scientifically, design leads to a designer. But then philosophical questions, the bigger, biggest one that no one can seem to answer is, why is there something instead of nothing? Not, why, how, not how did something come to be, because uh, that's just a question of uh, mechanical causation and effect. But why is there something instead of nothing? On what basis can we call good versus wrong? Like what is the absolute standard? So the existence of morality, the existence of truth, the existence of beauty. We have a universal sense of beauty. And also how all humans, at great cost, have a universal existential cry for transcendence. There's something more. I am more the sum of my parts. Uh, There's a consciousness to us that we cannot explain. Like, uh, if all we are are just material atoms, who am I? What is my mind? What is my consciousness? What is my identity? Because I'm just random molecules. There really is no mind. It's an illusion. I have no identity. Uh, The possibility of rational thought. So, as scientists, we're very rational. But what is rational thought? Uh, Thought is just neurotransmitters bouncing around my brain so what is the difference between rational thought versus just random irrational thought? To have rational thought, there must be an ultimate rational being. So just even those formal levels, uh, they help us understand the, what the explanation of best fit is a God. But, it, just like you can debate things at a safe arm's distance, so if I go to McDonald's and the sign says a cheeseburger, $5, I don't go there is there really a cheeseburger? Is there not a cheeseburger? Uh, $5? Is it not $5? They've got their truth, I've got mine. How will I know? So I used to teach at a college. If I say to students, this Friday, there's a test. Uh, the students go, oh, how will I know? Like, did I hear that right? Is there is there a world that exists outside of my mind? Like, How do I know there really will be a test this Friday? Well, the way we know truth is to experience in the concrete. When we debate things at a safe distance in the abstract, we can never know. The only way is to know experience in the concrete. So I had a friend, uh, they're, they're happily married now, but uh, when he asked her out, he, she did a police check on him, just to be sure. And, and in the end, she still thought, I still cannot know enough data, like how do I know? How do I know? Well, in the end, you just gotta go out with him and, and find out then whether he's an ax murderer or not. Uh, but it's the same with us. We, we, we gotta buy the $5 cheeseburger. Turn up and do the exam on Friday. And how do I know there's a God? I think there can be that moment where we can just cry out, uh, God, if you're real, uh, I'm going to put my trust in you. Show yourself to me. We have to experience God to to really really know him. And I think God is very accommodating to to our level of faith. Like... uh, People in the Bible come up to Jesus with very superstitious ideas of Jesus. Maybe if I just touch him, things will go well. And Jesus seems very accommodating to people from where they're coming from. So I think if we really, really want to know, we just got to experience at a concrete level the relational, personal God. Good
1: question. Okay, there you go. All right. The next question is, why can't my son ever hit the toilet? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. So is, um, the next question is, so is believing in God the explanation for the best fit for everyone, but why doesn't everyone believe that? Why
0: doesn't it? Yes, yes. So um, why doesn't everyone believe in God if it's the best fit explanation? Well, it's like with the, the, the gun shooting in Aurora would seem, the best fit explanation would be we need less guns, but for some people it means we need more guns. Uh, and, and for some people, and same with global warming, Uh, The evidence seems very likely there's global warming. For other people, the best explanation is there there is no global warming. I think it's how, in the end it's how much we want to believe. So Jonathan Haidt in The Righteous Mind is very right. He says we're actually intuitive believers and we use evidence to... to, It's the tail which which is being wagged by an intuitive dog. And where do we form intuitive beliefs? I think in the end it's how much we really, really want to believe this. So it's interesting, in the Bible, uh, someone says, hey, I want to believe Jesus, help me believe. So I I think there is a a willing aspect, uh, and um, there are safe beliefs. In the end, 1 plus 1 equals 2 won't cost me much, but if there really is a Jesus, I've really got to put my life on the line and trust and commit myself to Jesus. Just like if there really, really is global warming, We've got to change the way we behave. Australia's got, the, got to change the way it produces carbon gases, which will cost a lot of money. But if we believe it to be true, so there's a cost. There will be a cost. Just like people don't want to give up guns, I think there's a cost. People don't believe in global warming. Uh, there, there's, there's something which might make us just lazy thinkers think, you know, in the end, it might be easier if I just live. you know, as if there was no God. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.